Welcome to Charting the Course, a podcast from Full Sail Capital. We're a registered investment advisory firm committed to helping clients grow and manage generational wealth. We do this by focusing on integrity, competency, and transparency each and every day. No matter where you find yourself on the investing journey, our hope is that these conversations, stories, and interviews can empower and equip all investors with fresh insight and perspective on the capital markets. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, I hope you all are having a great week so far. Today, I'm joined by Full Sail Advisor Max Rhodes and Chuck Wiggin, president of Wiggin Properties here in Oklahoma City. Now, we sit down to have another anchored conversation, which is our real estate focus series here on Charting the Course, but there will be a little bit of an at-the-helm entrepreneur flair to it as you get to hear from Chuck, and he gives a history of really his background and everything he's gone through and everything he's really seen. So a little bit of everything here today. Chuck was gracious to sit down, spend some time looking back on the history of Oklahoma City, the real estate market, as well as highlighting the features of both historical tax credits and new market tax credits. We really appreciate Chuck sharing his knowledge with us. I hope you find it as interesting as we did. Now, as always, if there's anything we can do for you, just please let our team know. Here is my conversation with Max and Chuck. Enjoy. Well, Chuck and Max, it is a pleasure to be down here in studio with you this morning. I appreciate you both for joining me today. Max, I'm going to kick it to you to let you introduce our guest. Um, you have the relationship with Chuck, so I'll let you give a little bit of background on him, and then we'll jump in here to our anchored slash at-the-helm conversation that we're going to walk through today with Chuck. So I appreciate you uh, you both being here. Thank you, Tyler. And yes, the, the privilege really is ours today. It's an honor to have Chuck here. Chuck is um, someone I've known for a period of time and have certainly uh, respected from afar for most of my career. So it's an honor to have him here to talk about some real estate topics, but also to get uh, his perspective on this city, really more of an at-the-helm flavor to this episode, given his business background. So, uh, Chuck, thank you for coming today. It's great to be here, Max. Before we get started, just want to talk a little bit about uh, what brought you here. I know that you arrived in Oklahoma City in the late 70s after spending some time at Northeast. So give us a little background and education, what led you here? Sure. If you'd asked me if I was going to be living and working in Oklahoma City 50 years ago, I would have said, where's that? (laughs) (laughs) So where were you prior to moving here? I grew up in the Boston area. Okay. And I moved here from, I was living in Newton at the time. Okay. Uh, I went to school in Wellesley High School, went to Harvard College, and then went and got a law degree and and an MBA at Harvard Business School. Wow. So I spent a lot of time in Cambridge. And I always thought that uh, living someplace else was pretty important because it's a big world and it's pretty easy to get caught up in one location and forget that there's a lot more out there. Yeah. So I took a job with a company called Spalding and Sly back in 1972, was that when I was finishing up in school? 73. And um, Spalding and Sly was a prominent Boston-based developer that had decided sometime uh, about the time I joined them, that they wanted to do something outside of Massachusetts. Massachusetts wasn't considered to be a very business-friendly environment at the time. Okay. I was actually hired by them to open an office in Philadelphia. Oh, wow. <laughs> and huh. Coming out of school, that was a, sounded like a great opportunity, a bit daunting. Yeah. Within three months of my starting work there, they'd changed their mind. So I worked in Boston for five years still wanting to live and work someplace else. Yeah. But they were a great company to work for, and and I don't regret any of the time that I spent working there. So briefly on that transition, finishing law school, what drew you specifically to the real estate industry? 
I had had a sampling of it a couple of times along the way. When I got out of college, I spent a summer working for a developer of lakefront property in New Hampshire. You know, I loved the outdoors and I loved hiking and, and loved the mountains. And so being in New Hampshire looking for lakefront property for this guy to buy was, seemed like a great job. Mm. But it was really in law school that I made the decision that real estate made a lot of sense to me. And that was because I had a, an opportunity to join, participate in a seminar run by a guy named Charles Haar, who was a law professor who subsequently became Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, but he was teaching a seminar on low-income housing. And one of the requirements for participation in the seminar was that you had to spend a summer as an intern for some company that was in the business of building low-income housing. So I went out to Los Angeles, worked for Boise Cascade Urban Development, and learned a lot about 236 housing, and they were building all over the country. And I was very intrigued. And, and the people that I met who were in the business were great folks that I've kept up with for many, many years. So you mentioned five years in Boston, come to Oklahoma City. How quickly from when you got here does Wigan Properties begin? Well, I was working for Spalding Sly when, when I came here, and I spent, I had been working for them for five years, and I've spent another three years running their Oklahoma City office as as their managing partner. And that was, um, it was three years after I moved here that, that I decided that it was time to start Wigan Properties. And, and it wasn't because I didn't like Spalding Sly, but I wanted to be a partner. And I thought that the best way to be a partner with that company, since they were based in Boston, was either to work in Boston as a senior level employee or to be a partner who was basically a partner in the parent company that was operating out of Oklahoma City. Okay. And that appealed to me. That was what I really wanted to do. And that wasn't their model. They wanted if I was going to be a partner as, and they offered me a job and back in Boston, but it wasn't really what I was looking for. Yeah. So 1978, what does this city look like? Well, I can tell you since I lived in the Skirvin Hotel a good bit oh, wow. at the start, wow. that uh, it was a ghost town at night. You know, you walk out of the door of the hotel and there was nobody around, nothing to do. <laughs> it was just not. Yeah, I mean, there's no break town. There's no. No, I mean, the, none of what we the think business of. Dist- the business district would, like you said, it would become pretty vacant at night, I'd assume. Right. There's no midtown. No midtown. <laughs> yeah. No downtown, really. How long, so you lived, or you spent, it sounds like many nights in the Skirvin. Where did you officially kind of plant your roots once you, did you, buy a house, have an apartment. Where, a house. Was, where was your location? I've always think that's fascinating to ask. Well, about. I should add here that I was not married when I was offered the job in Oklahoma City. Okay. But I'd been dating a girl for several years and this move prompted my asking her to marry ah, me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was a very nice uh, part of moving to Oklahoma City. We got married, uh, floated the mid- middle fork of the Salmon River in Idaho and spent a couple of days in Sun Valley and then landed in Oklahoma City. Wow. It was a great way to start. Perfect. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Well, thinking back just on that period of time that we're talking about makes us think about a book that we had uh, recommended to clients at the end of last year, Boomtown, talks at great length about the city from when people first got here to the land run. And I know that's something that uh, you have a particular passion for, your involvement in creating the 89er Trail. I imagine you got some insight on the creation of that Freedom Trail back in Boston. They uh, got to do that a few years ago. It's a fantastic trail. 
but just the fascinating story and chronology of how this city was created and the, the influences of people like Stanley Draper and, you know, Nord family and others, the list goes on and on. I think it's so important to your story and the story of others to talk about the transition from that time for people who didn't experience Oklahoma City until maybe the 2000s, what that transitions really looked like, not only physically with the buildings and structures, but just the feel, what you're describing of people coming into downtown versus sure. literally shunning it for for so long. Sure. Well, let me say first that Sam Anderson's book, Boomtown, was it's very a very eclectic story. You know, the subtitle in his book, I think, is fascinating. And I don't I'm gonna read this to you. It says The Fantastical Saga of Oklahoma City, its chaotic founding, its apocalyptic weather, its purloined basketball team, and the dream of becoming a world class metropolis. A lot in that description, yeah. isn't there? <laughs> yeah. He had a chapter, I guess it was, about the land run in which he described walking from the eastern boundary of the unassigned lands, walking halfway across the unassigned lands to downtown Oklahoma City, just to get a feel for what these people went through who came here in 1889. And I thought, this this is my kind of guy. He likes, <laughs> <laughs> he likes to get involved and yeah. kind of think it through and follow it through. Yeah. What, what was one of the first... You know, you mentioned being in the scurve and walking out the front doors and there's just nothing going on. What was one of those first developments or real estate focused ideas that in your opinion, you started to think, hey, like maybe, maybe this city can become something more than it is right now? Well, let me start by saying that Oklahoma City was a boom town in 1978 when I moved here. Okay. Okay. The oil and gas business was going big time. And, uh, and there was a little bank in the shopping center out here called Penn Square Bank. Yeah. It was funding a lot of these uh, oil and gas guys. Yeah. And my first job as at Wigan Properties was to consult for Penn Square Bank, for wow. Ron Burks and Beep Jennings, and help them uh, conceptualize and build what we now think of as the Valiance Tower. It was, okay. it was the Penn Bank Tower at the time. Right. And it was going great guns. I was hired as a consultant. So uh, even though the bank failed in July of 1982 was when Penn Square Bank failed. That was a huge event for Oklahoma City because it led to what was was clearly a depression. Yeah. You know, it was the the crash that followed the boom. And so starting a company in 1981 seemed like a good idea at first. But when Penn Square Bank failed, uh, we had to change our approach to the business and uh, try to adapt with some radical changes. So the city's been through a lot. I guess I say that because really the big story about Oklahoma City comes much later. And that story is the story of maps. You know, we got down on our on ourselves after the oil bust and thought that, you know, the city would never come back. But of course, uh, we were searching in the wrong place. We were looking for companies that we could bring to Oklahoma City and they would bring jobs. And in fact, what prompted Ron Norick to conceive of the first maps project his attempt to recruit the headquarters it wasn't headquarters it was a regional office for one of the airlines and that effort failed because they felt that the quality of life in indianapolis was more favorable than oklahoma city yeah so norick got on a plane went to indianapolis walked around downtown and said my god they were right (laughs) and he said 
We can't be running our economic development program around bringing other people here. We need to invest in ourselves. Yeah. And it was that decision and that concept that led to the first MAPS projects. Mm-hmm. And I think that Norick deserves great credit for that inspiration. Agree 100%. The, the projects that were done in MAPS 1 worked so well that the voters the, who approved the program in 1993 were very receptive to doing another round. And, uh, and of course, Kirk Humphreys became mayor, and Kirk was a big fan of education and, and improving our school system. And he went through the incredible task of lacing together all of the different school districts, all of the different municipalities that school districts spilled over into. And, and he did the Maps for Kids initiative, which rebuilt all of our city schools yeah. and rehabilitated many of them. And so that was Maps 2. And then, of course, Maps 3, McCornette brought in Thunder. That was not Maps. That was private investment. Nevertheless, building the arena that enabled the NBA to yeah. come to Oklahoma City was... It made it possible. Made, made, it, it, made, it, made it possible, yeah. 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 Now, Mick had Scissor Tail Park under his watch, MAPS 3. The new convention center, Port Ashore, was all under Mick's watch. So, uh, and then, of course, now David Holt, our MAPS new mayor. Four. Here we go. Here we go, MAPS 4. Yeah. Only we're not doing downtown venues anymore. We're doing anything, parks all over the city, social welfare programs. Yeah. And we're doing basically all comers. He, he, he put out an advertisement saying, tell us what you think we need in MAPS 4. Yeah. And people came in with all kinds of wild ideas. Oh, yeah. And at the end of the day, instead of picking the top five, he said, nope, we're going to find a way to do all of these things. So cool. Yeah. yeah. And he is. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. yeah. What a program. Let's talk a little bit more about really what you've done at your time at Wiggins Property and specifically wanted to talk about two programs that I know you have a great level of experience and involvement with. Those are new market tax credits and the historical tax credit programs, um, which have been a a big part of the, the way this city has transformed over time. First, with new market tax credits, just tell us a little bit about the history of that program, uh, what you drew you to it, what you have done within the program since applying and receiving those sure, credits. Sure, happy to. So the new market tax credit program was enacted by Congress in uh, 2000, okay. about the time that Bill Clinton was leaving office as president. Uh, it was designed to drive investment in low-income communities, which are defined statutorily by census tract, uh, by the demographics of those individual census tracts. And the credits are managed by private sector entities called CDEs, Community Development Entities. Initially, they were authorized at a rate of $5 billion per year, and that rate has continued through 2021. They had allocated a total of $71 billion to this program. And the idea, of course, was driving investment in these communities that were under-invested. The credits are normally purchased by large banks, which make equity investments in sub-allocated CDEs. This gets kind of technical, so stop me here if I'm I'm getting into the weeds. But the CDEs are allocated responsibility for making these investments. A lot of the details of how this works can be found on the website of the CDFI fund, which administers it for the Treasury Department. CDFI is Community Development Financial Institutions. And I should also uh, mention that we have a website for our CDE called nmrllc.com. And again, you'll find lots of details about the program and what has happened in Oklahoma City and Tulsa and other places where we've used the program. So you talk about the, the program benefiting low-income community, which they describe or define, I should say. 
it sounds like there are multiple ways in which you can benefit a community, not just specific to, to building a structure, but you can, they view benefiting the community as impacting through adding jobs or services. It's more than a, just a very narrow dis- description. Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. And as the program has evolved over the years, the city of Fund has, by the questions that they want to have you answer in an application, they've been able to steer the program in different areas to emphasize the outcomes that are achieved by specific projects in low-income communities. And uh, and that's been a very interesting thing to follow and to be involved in. And that can change year over year Absolutely. as needs are met. Yes. So speaking of that application process specifically, I, I know because we talked in January about scheduling this interview mm-hmm. and you commented on the competitiveness of that application process. And I understand from doing my own research how competitive this process is. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, whether that has always been the case or or trends you're seeing as more people are learning and becoming familiar with the application process? Well, I would say that the industry has matured. Uh, lots of CDEs have had great success at investing their allocations. In our case, uh, we've had five allocations over the years, amounting to $157 million, and those have all been invested in the state of Oklahoma. Describe Wiggins Properties' role. Say you yeah. apply and you receive credits. Sure. What is your role and what type, some of the projects, for example, that you've, you've been a part of over sure. the years? So the first project that we funded back in 1995 was the Skirvin Hotel, okay. and uh, we put $23 million of our first allocation into that project at a time when they had not figured out how they were going to cover the gap in funding to actually tackle the project. We put in $23 million. Another CDE in Durant Rural Enterprises put in $8.5 million. And so together we had $31.5 million of the $55 million funding that project. Wow with New Markets tax credits. And that was uh, an amazing project to be involved in because it was involved, it had a role in so many things over the city's history that uh, encapsulate what the city was, what was going on in the city. And many of the memories from those days were dug up, you know, when when this building was renovated. People that worked there, people that stayed there, people that were married there. And so it's hard to put a financial price on what all those memories are worth. But I can say that it was a $55 million renovation project that uh, involved historic tax credits as well as new markets tax credits and uh, was a phenomenal success in terms of the impact that it had on other development in the neighborhood. Do you see that success continuing in this program sticking around for a while? Absolutely. It's come to be understood as a very powerful tool and it's a public-private partnership because these are federal income tax credits, but they are also uh, administered by, they've essentially outsourced the administration to community development entities. This may be oversimplifying it, but thinking from a financial perspective, getting these credits and including this as part of uh, the development of a project, it seems like you could say this effectively lets you buy down your rate for a project Mm -hmm. through adding this. Is that a fair statement? Yes, very definitely. So a typical investment uh, of new markets tax credits comes from a an investment fund created by the bank or financial institution that buys the credits. So our CDE would take the funds that came from that investment fund 
and put them into the entity that owned and was redeveloping the building. So the format that that would take would be, first of all, it would be a low interest rate loan. And typically it would, there'd be an A note and a B note. The A note would represent the market rate or the leverage that the investor who was buying the credits would use uh, to leverage his yield and to improve the yield. So there's an A note and a B note. The B note essentially represented the money that the investor in the tax credits was putting up to buy the tax credits. The, the net effect of that was very low income, very low interest rate financing. And at the end of seven years, the program would be, or the investment would be unwound, meaning that the owner of the project would be able to acquire the new market's equity for a nominal amount. Okay. Typically $1,000. Okay. So, wow. I see. you know, $33 million of credits went into the project initially, approximately 25% of that was represented the cash value, discounted value of, that, of those credits. And that 25% could be bought in by the project sponsor for a thousand bucks. Okay. And I'll give you an example of one that yeah. we did in downtown Tulsa. Yeah, that'd be great. The palace building at the corner of 4th and Main okay. uh, was owned by the Tulsa World. And they, for a time, they thought they might tear the building down. And uh, there were a few people, ourselves included, who thought that this historic building uh, deserved to be saved. So we converted it into a, uh, a mixed-use project, which was, in the case of the Palace Building at 4th and Main, was a predominantly housing. But across the alley to the west, there was a parking lot that the Tulsa World wanted to store their paper for their printing presses in that, in that location. So we combined the, printing, the paper for the printing press with the residential component and that qualified for new market tax credits. I got you there. Yep. Okay. So now as we get into the historical tax credits, I would assume just as competitive on that application process, or is it more about the project that is being applied for? So the historic tax credit program, I should say for starters, has a longer life than okay. the new market credits. Those go back to 1976. Oh, okay. Wow. And... The requirement there is that the building have historical significance, and that's generally determined by having it registered in the National Register. Okay. That designation requires the approval of the National Park Service in the Department of the Interior, and so uh, identifying the historical significance of the building is the crucial test. So there's no limit on how many buildings or how many dollars are spent on historic tax credits, if you qualify and you go through the process of applying to the National Park Service through the SHPO, State Historic Preservation Office, by a matter of right, you can get historic tax credits. Oh, okay. So at a high level, there used to be, my understanding, two different kind of programs, the 10% program and the 20% program. Correct. And we're left with just the 20% program. That's correct. Post-Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And we also are left with the realization of those tax credits, not in one lump sum at the completion of the rehabilitation, but that's they're realized rateably over the five-year period during which you're not allowed to sell the building. You've got a five-year commitment from the time that that project is completed, and that five-year period is now the period over which the tax credits are claimed. 
I know that there are some very specific requirements to achieve this 20% credit down to very granular detail on the, the style of the windows, the appearance, usage of original materials or products. Could you just talk very generally about what those, sure. some of those more difficult requirements are? Well, the Secretary of the Interior has established standards for historic rehabilitation. And so you can go online and read about what those standards are, and that's what you have to do. They, uh, they have rules. They have windows. There are requirements that the windows be historic. That's just one of many things. Part two of the process of applying and using the credits, part two of the application is to spell out in detail what you plan to do by way of rehabilitation according to the Secretary of the Interior Standards. And then once you spell those out, the National Park Service signs off on them. And by the way, they go through the review initially of the State Historic Preservation Office. And that's a very positive thing because the local office is more apt to be sensitive to the needs of the project. And they make a recommendation to the National Park Service, which then approves the Part 2. So the Part 2 application is where the, all the weeds are. And if you go afoul of that, then you can't get your Part 3 approval which is basically certification that you have done everything you said you would do in part two. Wow. So in part two and part three, are they periodically coming in and reviewing the project? Because I would think a fear would be getting too far down the road and then they say, well, that does not meet the requirement. You're going to need to start over. Are they checking so you're ensured that you're meeting those requirements as you progress? Absolutely. That inspection is done for the most part by private consultants. So. The investor who buys the credits or who creates the partnership that gives rise to the credits, that investor will require that you, that you have a historic consultant that makes sure as you go that you're doing it according to the, not only what you said you do, but according to the secretary's standards. And let's say in the off chance you have possession of the credits. I don't even know if that's the correct term. Uh, and either you don't use them or the, for some reason, they are not fully realized. Can you, what can you do with those credits? Can you sell them? Is there a secondary market for these? Yes, there is, but you can't sell the building. So it's difficult to do that after you have already completed the project. You really need to figure out the financial structure in advance. So as you did with new market tax credits, if you'd share with us some of the historical tax credit projects you've done over the years and how you've seen this program benefit Oklahoma City. You bet. We invested in the Scriven Hotel I mentioned earlier. Yeah. We invested in the 21C Hotel. Okay. And then we tried to help Gary Brooks at First National Center. Yeah. We didn't have an allocation to do it, okay. unfortunately, but Gary was able to get both historic credits and some new markets credits right. to do that project. He, he talked about the capital stack when he was on, on the podcast, and so it was just fascinating to watch all that and how it did line up and who that last capital stack addition was. And so I got it. I, you know, my eyes opened to just the complexity of it. Right. Uh, so sitting here talking about this, it's just, it's just crazy, well, especially the historical tax credit side of how you were talking about those levels you have to get through and right. crazy. Well, Gary went through the ringer on that project I and mean, what an amazing project. <laughs> yeah. And to his credit, he stuck it out and get it done and did it. Yeah. Made a fantastic Beautiful. project. Out of it. Yeah. yeah. What a benefit to our city and state. Well, and having the Skirvin, since we've talked about it, and then First National just blocks away from each other right. of two foundational buildings in Oklahoma City. Right. And now to be have both of them fully revitalized, if you will, 
fully in play is pretty cool. Those, of course, are not the only historic buildings right, in town. No. We still have a few others that are left. But in order to do the historic credits, you have to invest in qualified rehabilitation expenditures, QREs. Okay. You have to invest more money in the project than your basis, than your cost basis in the building. Okay. So it's not for the faint of heart. You've got right. to go at it and do a thorough rehabilitation. That could be, yeah, that could be a chunk of change. You're not That's just good. painting and painting and doing carpet. Right. <laughs> so in reflecting on these two programs, you've got one historical tax credit program that seems to be based on a finite amount of buildings or opportunities. There are so only so many buildings that would qualify for this. And so individuals in your space may not choose to pursue to rehabilitate or pers- remodel some buildings, at which case there foreseeably could be an end to this program. If there's no more desire, maybe we pursue new build eventually versus restoring old buildings. Whereas the new market tax credit program, as long as they've identified low-income communities in a need, this program could conceivably go on for for decades. Do you do you think that historical tax credit program has some legs and, and will be around longer than I get the sense it could be. I, I definitely do because there are old buildings out there and uh, and it's like our history. It's there and these buildings, a reflection of an earlier time that yeah. for whatever reason may have come into disrepair, may not be obvious candidates for a renovation, but, but they're uh, very important to our history and, and so they will be. There's an effort going on right now to uh, update the historic tax credit program. I don't think that there's a will in Congress with all the other things going on there to get this done yet. Okay. But uh, a lot of thought's been given to it, and a lot of the leaders in historic preservation have been involved in it. So one of the things that that would do is it would raise the credit from 20% to 30% on projects less than $2.5 million. Oh, so, okay. you know, the big, the giant projects like the Skirvin Hotel or the First sure. National Center. That's what we kind of think of, but... Right. Yeah. It's not just those. And there's a surprising number of old buildings that where some very interesting things happened over the years. Especially, I would think, in not necessarily rural rural towns, but um, some of your smaller cities surrounding our metro, for Mm -hmm. instance. You've got to think of some... Main Street uh, programs. Yeah, some of those Main Street buildings that, that would qualify. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. At the last part of this conversation, Chuck, I just wanted to talk about real estate investing in general. Not only what you've gained from your experience, but the outlook this year and moving forward, interest rate environment impact it has across sectors. Just to start generally with real estate as an asset class, very obviously something you believe in, something that Full Sail uh, has focused on since we started in 2018. You talked about what drew you to real estate, but specifically real estate as an investment. Your experience there and and why you, why you view it so positively as you do. Well, first of all, I'm in the business because I love the businesses. And and like most businesses, there are ups and downs. The uh, real estate business in Oklahoma City during the oil bust 1980s was a very different place from where it is today. And I think that uh, real estate is most definitely a separate asset class from stocks and bonds. And it has its own particular advantages and disadvantages. Typically, uh, real estate uh, is not considered to be a liquid mm-hmm. asset class although there are, of course, public REITs. And so there are ways to invest in real estate that are not just directly in the assets. Investing in real estate has been a very important source of wealth. And uh, and I have viewed it from that perspective for many years and seen it 
uh, both in the ups and the downs. I would say that as volatile as many investments are currently, stocks and bonds in particular, real estate looks pretty good. Now, that's not to say that there are great deals to be picked up all over the place, but there are some things going on that will lead to opportunities. Let me ask then, what what are you most excited about? Whether it's a retail industrial office, maybe it's geographical focus, maybe it's just something about what you're seeing in real estate generally. Sure. What are you looking forward to? Well, let me say, first of all, that we're involved in office space. That's probably our best known area of expertise. Okay. But we also do retail and we do industrial. Uh, We're getting ready to do our first hotel. But I think that uh, all of those have their opportunities. And right now, office and hotels are very much out of favor. That means to us that there may be opportunities that we can capitalize on. Uh, I think we are... Big believers in contrarian bets, office and hotel fall into that category. Uh, We're actually looking very hard at RV parks. Uh, We're also doing some small retail. Uh, We do large retail if we found uh, the right projects to invest in. But right now there's a big gap between people who see cap rates as being what they were a year ago Mm -hmm. and those who say that interest rates are higher and therefore cap rates need to be lower. (laughs) So you got buyers and you got sellers and they don't see eye to eye right now. And then in terms of just trends, what much has been written about migration from the Northeast, South, parts of the West Coast leaving and then net inflows with states like Florida. You guys have many projects outside of Oklahoma that you've done over the history of Wigan Properties. What do you think are the main drivers for these movements? Some more obvious than others, but do you see these trends continuing? So the trends right now uh, away from the coasts, I think uh, will last for some time. I don't think that that this is like a pandemic that's going away, which by the way, may or may not be going away. And that's it's one of the big contributors to the volatility that we see these days. But prices on the coast have arguably been overheated and cap rates have gotten to historically, had gotten to historically low levels, which really have not been sustainable. And so uh, when you can't find what you're looking for on the coast, you look in the interior of the country. And so the heartland of America is very much in favor. I, I saw an article a couple of months ago about Oklahoma City moving to 22nd largest city in the nation and now 20th. And so it's it's exciting to see. I think it's be careful what you wish for. It's If the numbers get too big too fast, you are presented with other issues to address. Um, but certainly I would think an exciting time to be in the space in Absolutely. the city. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for your time, Chuck. We really appreciate it. I know that our listeners will as well. Yeah. Thank you both. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to review and subscribe to your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week. All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.